My name is Lloyd Biddle. I'm one of the pastors here at High Point Church. I'm here to give the message. But before I jump into the message, I want to talk to you a little bit about our offering. This will be offering time. Uh, as an elder of the church, I'm just so excited that we continue to be well beyond our budget in terms of needs. Uh, right now, the last week or two, we've been able to help High Point families who've been out, out of work, impacted by COVID-19. Um, we've been helping with rent and other emergency expense needs, and it's because we're able to do so because of your tremendous generosity. So I can't thank you enough behind, on behalf of Nick and all the elders of our church. Thank you so much. Um, this morning, uh, I have the uh, privilege of preaching on a subject that not many pastors really relish preaching on. Today I'm going to be talking on the subject of racism. Um, and the title is very simple, Racism Still Exists. Uh, we're going to look at uh, some scripture this morning. As I start, we're going to look at the story of Israel and Egypt going to the time of Joseph and then the time of Moses. So we're going to read Genesis 46, 31 through 34, and then Exodus chapter 1, 1 through 14. Genesis 46, 31 through 34 reads, Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were living in the land of Canaan have come to me. Now the, the men are shepherds. They tend livestock. And they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. Now when Sarah calls, out, calls you in and asks, What is your occupation? You should answer, Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen. For all the shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Exodus 1, 1 through 14. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben and Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70. In all, Joseph was in Egypt. Now Joseph, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country." So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Uh, I didn't learn about racism 
uh, growing up in a segregated West Side community in Austin, um, a community that at one point um, in the 50s was all white, and as African Americans came from the South, came into the hospital district on the West Side, and then began to buy homes, and there was a white flight that, into the suburbs. But I didn't learn racism growing up on the West Side of Chicago, being educated by um, faithful priests like Father Phelan, faithful nuns like Sister Jane, from kindergarten through eighth grade in all black Catholic schools. I didn't learn racism there. It was when I got a scholarship and went to high school at the Latin School of Chicago and then commuted about an hour by train and bus um, to the north side, to the Gold Coast. And uh, it was a culture shock. And so this kid who was used to being with middle-class um, uh, black folks uh, and, and with white educators that loved him tremendously, um, then had to kind of insert himself into kind of the upper echelon of, of Chicago society. And um, the students there were, were marvelous. They welcomed me in. Um, they, they loved me. Uh, my favorite teacher was Mrs. Kritzberg, blessed by her immensely. My junior year of high school, I got a job in the neighborhood. So I, uh, again, some of you know Chicago. My school is on Clark Street and uh, North Avenue, uh, not too far from Moody Church, uh, ultra-affluent. The homes in the neighborhood probably started uh, at even then, this would have been the, the early, late 70s, early 80s, even then, townhouses would have been six or 700,000 plus. And, and a woman, uh, one of the families from the Latin school, they hired me uh, to work with their son who had autism. And as opposed to having very expensive therapists to do the physical therapy that her, her son required, she hired me and another Latin student who would come after school and work with her son for two hours and do his physical therapy. And I would do this probably three days a week. And uh, when I was at Latin, what was cool was to be a preppy. And so my gear, we didn't have uniforms at the Latin school like I did at, Re at Resurrection Catholic School. We didn't have uniforms. But here was the preppy uniform, Levi's blue jeans, uh, Sperry topsider shoes, um, Lacoste uh, polo shirt. If it was cool, it would be a golf uh, jacket on top of that. Uh, preppy. Some of you will be familiar with, with preppy. Um, I would have, uh, if, if I wasn't wearing a, the polo, I'd have a kind of a pinstriped um, Oxford shirt, right? So there was, a, there was a code, there was a look. And I was wearing this look when I went just two blocks away from the, where the high school was located, in one of these very expensive neighborhoods. And I was dressed like I was an upper-middle-class Latin School of Chicago kid. I had on the right gear. And I was walking just like I had done many times before on this block to go to the McPherson's house where I would work with their son. But this particular day was different than the most. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw a police officers, two jump, jumped out of their car and started running at me. And I was like, this had never happened to me before in my life. But I had been well-trained by my dad and my mom about how to be compliant when police officers approach you. This was a stop and frisk deal. So they come up, they start reaching into my pockets. I'm as cool as a cucumber. 
I said, officer, um, I'm, I'm confused. And he said, what are you doing here? I said, officer, I'm about th three houses away from the place where I work. You want to come and meet the McPhersons with me? By this time, they've reached into my pocket, pulled out my wallet, opened up and got my school ID with the Latin School Chicago on it. And they started getting a little nervous then. They was like, Latin School Chicago? Oh, man, oh, oh we're kind of sorry about that. Uh, I said, well, well, do you, you want to accompany me to see the McPhersons? Would you like? No, 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 we're good, we're good. And they go off, get back in their car, and go away. Stop and frisk. This would have been 1978 or 79. Flash forward about eight years. Now, by this time, because uh, of that great education I got at the Latin School and the great education I got at the University of Illinois, I'm working in my dream job at Continental Bank, one of the top five banks in the country. And after work, the guys would get together and play softball. We had a softball league. And uh, I was right in the middle of the heart of the financial district in downtown Chicago. That venerable old bank building is still there. That was where I worked. And it was like any other day after work, I came, I put on a jogging suit like you see on this slide. It was the blue jogging suit with red stripes. And I started walking to Grant Park like I had done numerous times before. But this time what had happened was, uh, right out in front of the bank, and I was three blocks away, a woman had gotten mugged and, uh, and money was taken from her, purse was taken from her. And I, uh, the police stopped me two or three blocks as I was walking to Grant Park, and they said to me, sir, sir, listen, we, we, gotta, we stopped you. There, there was a robbery uh, not too far from here, and uh, we, need to, we need to put you in our car and take you over to where she is. And I said, okay, I said, uh, and, and what was the description of this person? Well, it was the black person with a red jogging suit. Well, I had on a blue jogging suit with a red pinstripe. No problem. I've been well-trained by my parents. Compliant. They put me in the back seat of the car. Nice guys, you know, put me in the back seat of the car. Drove me right in front of the headquarters of the bank where I worked. Uh, around 5.30, when many people would have been leaving, people that I knew would have been leaving the bank to go home. Took me right in front of the bank, had me get out. Sir, would you get out? I got out. Uh, the woman looked at me, no, he's not the person. And then the, the officer said, oh, we're sorry, sir. Uh, would you like a ride to the park? Would I like a ride to the park? No, sir. No, sir. Thanks. And I started a long walk. It's about a mile walk from Continental Bank in the heart of the financial district. And I walked over to Grant Park. I'm still on that walk to this day. Racism in America. Uh, pastors like Pastor Nick, Pastor Marcio, have been, been working really hard together. Pastor Marcio pastors uh, at Lighthouse Church here in town. Um, they belong to an MP3 ministers group. I belong to it as well. And in response to the George Floyd uh, killings and uprising, uh, pastors, white, black, Hispanic, all kinds of pastors have been really working together, coming together in unity. And one of the ways in which um, the pastors wanted to come together in unity was to kind of to confess uh, the sins of racism. Um, and, and, and in so doing, we signed, all the elders, 
along with Pastor Nick, signed a statement. Uh, in part, it says this. We condemn the racist, racist acts that continue to happen today. We report of our own racism. We repent of our own racism and fear, both conscious and unconscious. We reject our reluctance to be agents of healing and reconciliation in our churches, in our region, in our, and in our nation. We continue to preach, we, will, we resolve to preach, teach, and advocate against the sins of racism. And so today, as I preach on racism, it's one of our steps towards um, committing to what we uh, promised. Racism still exists. Uh, when I talk about racism, what I mean is this, uh, prejudice against and hostility towards people of another race, an ethnicity, or culture, all right? And so I want to make sure I capture not just white versus black. I want to capture um, in Rwanda the genocide um, between the, the Tutsis and the Hutu, right? I want to I talk about ethnic differences that create uh, discrimination, that creates hostility against one group or another. And in Exodus 1, 6 through 10, the situation there is that Joseph, his generation has passed. A new Pharaoh has come, and God has blessed the Jewish people. So what used to be just 70 now measures hundreds and hundreds of thousands. And um, because the Jewish people have been prospered, the new Pharaoh, who is unaware of Joseph and his history, is concerned. And it's not that there was any particular things that the Jewish people had done in terms of an uprising. It was simply that God had blessed them in, in numbers. Uh, he was, they became fearful, and they, they thought, with, they, they approached them with suspicion and said, we need, to, we need to deal with them. We need to make sure that we have control of them. We need to make sure that if there's ever a war between us and our enemies, that, that we don't have to worry about the Jewish people. So his plan then was to put them into slavery. And so they got taskmasters and so forth, and they began to treat them harshly, get, began to give them responsibilities to build cities and towns with brick and mortar, and it says they treated them ruthlessly with tremendous oppression. And God, who looks upon those who are oppressed, the hurting, blessed them so much more that they began to increase even more. And now the Egyptians are really nervous. It says they looked upon them with fear and dread, and their response was to behave even more ruthlessly towards them, to treat them even harsher in order to keep control of them. Racism is, is old. Perhaps it's as old as the Tower of Babel, as expressed in Genesis chapter 11. It's an, it's an old ancient sin. 13, 14 centuries before Christ to the current day. Nothing new about it at all. And it exists in America. In May of 2017, a Harvard study on how resume whitening helps minority students get their jobs. Catch this out. Check this out. So if you're a student and you're like my son, and you're the president of the Black Student Union at the University of Wisconsin, 
What the Harvard study says is you should take that off your resume. And if you're an Hispanic student and you're in uh, some organization that clearly demarks that you're Hispanic, it would be best if you take that off your resume and apply for your job. Because the research says if you do, two times more companies will give you an interview than if you don't. And it doesn't matter if the organization says that they are a big diversity and inclusion company. That doesn't matter. The results are still the same. Be better to whiten your resumes so that you can get more job opportunities. Racism still exists in America. University of Michigan Law School 2012 study showed that federal prosecutors are almost twice as likely to file charges carrying mandatory minimum sentences for African Americans than whites who have accused of the same crimes. So, same crime, prosecutors with blacks, higher sentences. And I was driving home yesterday, and I just wanted to get the opinion of somebody who, who uh, does legal work for a living currently. And so I called my buddy from college, my frat brother from college, Carl Anthony uh, Walker, who is the appellate court justice in Illinois. And I said to Carl, man, is this really true? He says, Lloyd, I know it's true, and I'll go one better. The, that the information you just cited, where the federal prosecutors will charge blacks at a higher, for stiffer sentences than whites, it not only implies overall, it's even true when the prosecutor and the judge are black. To a lesser degree, Lloyd, to a lesser degree, the whites will be sentenced here, the African-American prosecuted and judged by, by black people will be here, and then the gap for whites will be here. He says, Lloyd, it's true. So we know that uh, racism still exists. And as I began to think about this from the perspective of an African-American, I began to think about why it is that African-Americans are talking about Black Lives Matter. Part of it could be, and I'm not a psychologist, that we're just trying to remind our own selves of our worth uh, within society. Black Lives Matter. Racism, prejudice against and hostility toward people of another race, ethnicity, or culture. So the first point is that racism exists today. It's not mythical. It has not gone away, and we ought not be surprised about this at all. One of my favorite scholars is John Piper. Uh, I'm, I am sending out a daily message on racial reconciliation. I will send you out Piper's article written probably in 2016, where he just basically says, why should we expect that this sin uh, has disappeared, but adultery is it's fine. Adultery is ancient, as old as man, but this particular sin has, has ended. And, and um, he's just really clear, and all of us really know when we just really objectively look at America and our circumstances, that racism still exists. Now, the next thing we need to recognize is that power and privilege based on race exists today. Uh, I want to actually look at this passage because it's really rich, and it explains how if you are in the majority culture, you have a level of power and privilege that those on the margins do not have. If you are in the majority group, you have a level of power and privilege that those who are in the minority group with less power do not have. 
Exodus chapter 2. Now a man in the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she couldn't hide him any longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch because Pharaoh had decided that all Jewish people, now the ruthlessness and the oppression had reached the peak. And Pharaoh had declared that all sons, Jewish sons, had to be put to death. The, the women could live, the, the girls could live, but the sons had to be put to death. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Now his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter, privilege, went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get them. She opened it and saw the baby, and he was crying. And she felt sorry for him. Now, this is one of the Hebrew babies. Declare to die, she said. Then Mo Moses' sister, who had been looking, ran up to her, to Pharaoh's daughter. Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, now take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. Privilege. Privilege was such in Egypt that the law didn't even apply to Pharaoh's daughter. Her father had set the decree. The Jewish sons must die. But because of power and privilege, she could ignore the law. And so Moses was raised as an Egyptian prince, fully aware of his Jewish heritage, fully aware of his power and privilege, fully aware that his family, his parents, and his sister and brother lived under oppression because they were Jews, and he, being adopted into the culture of privilege and power, could live like a prince. Privilege just comes along with, with being in the majority group. Now, what privilege doesn't mean, this is what it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you, if you're in the privileged group, have never suffered through difficulties and trials in your own cultural heritage. That's not what privilege means. It doesn't mean that those who have it haven't worked hard to accomplish what they've accomplished in life. That's not what it means. But here's what it does mean. It means all else equal. If you are in the dominant group, you have more power and privilege than those who don't. Here's an example. Amy Cooper. This is a May 2020 incident, and she's in a park in New York City, center, New York City called the, um, the Ramble, in the main Central Park. And she has her dog with her, dog's little rambunctious. And in this part of the park, there are signs all around saying, keep your dog on the leash. And in this part of the park, there are all kinds of bird watchers who are looking at, all, I, I, I'm told in Central Park in this place, all kinds of birds are there. And folks who enjoy that were there. One of the folks who enjoyed that was a man named Christian Cooper, an African-American man. And when he runs into Amy and sees the dog off her leech and disrupting his ability to do his bird watching, he says, hey, ma'am, could you, could, would you put the dog back on the leash? And she 
decides she doesn't want to do it. And they get into some kind of an argument to the point where he pulls out his cell phone and begins recording the argument, showing her with her dog off the leash, breaking the law. She gets irritated. Put that away. Put that away. And he just keeps filming. If you don't put that away, I am going to call the police. And I'm going to tell them that you are attacking me and my dog. So you keep it up. I'm going to call. And he just keeps filming. And she, so she gets the phone, and she makes good on her threat. And she calls the police and says, hey, I'm in Central Park, and here's a black man. And he's attacking me and my dog, and I need you to come. I need you to come immediately. And uh, Mr. Christian Cooper just turns his cell phone off. Police officers come. By this time, both of them have left the scene. But the, the video goes viral. So the question becomes, why does this white woman threaten this African-American man that she should call the police on him if she doesn't understand this particular dynamic in America? that she as a white woman has more privilege, that the police force will protect her and not the African-American man. She, just, she knows this. She knows this instinctively that she has privilege. She gets fired from her employer. She apologizes later on and admits in her apology that for her whole life, I have seen the police force uh, as a protective agency and it's unfortunate, I'm coming to understand, that not everybody in society has that same privilege. Power and privilege. Racism uh, accompanied with power and privilege for the majority group. Jack Salzwedo is the chairman of American Family. Uh, he's been watching on the scenes. And he wants to respond. He says this, I am privileged. I have a voice. I want to use it for good. What happens in places like Minneapolis with George Floyd, New York City with Christian Cooper, and Georgia with Armand Aubrey is simply wrong. I have to uh, condemn this. I, 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 my, my vision is not the, the greatest, so bear with me. I've got this, and it's, it's actually very important. Um, in my mind, that you hear what he says. And the, the reason it's very important that you hear what he says is because, in my mind, I believe that this kind of response is what we're going to need in order, in order to make things right in America. We need those who have privilege and power to stand up for those who don't. I hear the concern, anger, and disillusionment from leaders of all colors. Here's the question. Shouldn't we all be angry? It's time to do something. It's just time. Identifying and solving the root causes of the suffering caused by these societal issues is complex, and I believe it requires people of privilege, white people, to stand up for and stand with our communities like never before. So I, I believe that businesses must stand up too. So what do you do with your privilege? You haven't done anything wrong to have privilege. You shouldn't be guilty about your privilege. 
But how can I use my privilege in order to, to, to build the kingdom of God? The first thing is to admit it. Just, just plain and simply understand this basic dynamic, which is as old as 13 centuries before Christ, that if you're in the majority group, you have more power and privilege than those on the margins. This is true in Africa. This is true in the United States. This is true in Latin America. First thing is, if you're in the privileged group, just admit it. The second thing is, when people like me tell you about their stories of what it's like not to be, have the same privilege and the pain that they still walk in to the very day, listen, don't make fun of them and don't shut them down. Third thing, use your power to help alleviate the injustices. Why? Because God's people have always been charged to do this. Psalm 82, 2 and 4, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And I remember Phil Porter, I was sitting at this very same spot doing her funeral, and her daughter Deb came up and gave a testimony of a vacation that they did in the 80s. The family was on a vacation. They were in Florida. They went to church, and the particular pastor was preaching some racist, spewing some racist stuff. And Phil was just disgusted. She got up out of her seat, took her family, went out of the church. She was so fuming, she couldn't even leave. So she told her family, you wait for a second until the service is over. When the service ended, she came into the sanctuary and rebuked the pastor. How is it that you, man of God, in charge with preaching the gospel that brings people together, could be preaching such racist filth from the pulpit. And then she leaves and go on her, on her business. It's often said, and I believe it's true, that in the police forces of America, there are just a few bad apples. I believe that's true. And I believe the most, the best, most effective way to get those bad apples out is when the great police officers who know who the bad apples are. When I was a kid playing ball, I knew who the drug addicts were. I knew who the ones were cheating on exams. In that fellowship, they know who the bad apples are. And as they begin more and more to hold the bad apples accountable and discipline them before they go too far, I believe that there will be better race relationships especially as it relates to this policing issue between the African-American people and especially white police officers. I think that'll help. Racism exists today. Power and privilege exists today. And racism negatively infects everyone. I'm moving quick now. The injustice has produced protests, mostly peaceful protests all along America. On the heels of the peaceful process is illegal, evil, wicked looting on the heels of it. The people who are actually doing this are saying things like, we're just trying to 
retaliate for the injustice that's done to George Floyd. It's, it's nonsense. But keep in mind American history, too, that in 1773, when Americans here were being taxed without representation by Britain, what did they do? They protested. They took the tea and dumped it into the harbor. Protest. Now, of course, this back and forth, injustice, protest, looting, which of course will be responded to by increased force, which then will be, which will be caught on video, which will lead to more unrest, and you get the cycle. You get the picture, violence begets more violence, but, but that doesn't produce racial reconciliation, but here's the good part. Jesus came to reconcile the races. And how does he do that? He does that by not taking me and making me a Jew, or not taking Nick, though he's got a lovely Jewish wife, and making him a Jew. He does that by making a new family in his own, in his own family. He does that by paying the price for sin, racism and every other sin that there would be, reconciling us together in one new body, the church, in his own blood, through repentance and faith, so that now we have one new united people, one Lord, one Holy Spirit, one gospel, one people, with a new ethic and new responsibilities. We are people of faith who know that Jesus will make all things right upon his, his return. We have tremendous faith. We are people who have been called to love one another. That is our core ethic, that we should love God and love each other. Uh, love my brother like I love myself. Love Ashlyn with the same fervor that I love my wife. Those, though differently, right? Come on with me now. The, the idea is that my heart, my desire to protect and defend her should be there, and the same her towards me. We have this new ethic to love one another. We are all made in the image of God, and we fully recognize this. And so we're not going to let foolishness of culture to overwhelm us and get us into discrimination and foolishness and racism because we know that we're on equal footing before our God who made us all beautiful and marvelous in his own sight. We recognize and we have an ethic to call injustice what it is so that we, we, when we see blatant racism and oppression, we call it for what it is. And when we see rioting, and foolishness, we call it for what it is, sin. Not consistent with being new in Christ Jesus. All of us have that propensity to, to sin, but now we got the power in Christ through repentance and faith, through the Holy Spirit, through the communion of the saints, through the power that has been vested in us. We have the power to live a godly and holy life to call sin, sin, whoever commits it. Because we are the blessed peacemakers. And if we live like people of faith, 
And if we love like people of faith, and if we call sin like it is, like people of faith, if we forgive like people of faith, then we will be the peacemakers that can call all men into the kingdom of God, to Jesus, who reaches out to the Samaritan woman and her whole community and brings her into the people of God. That's the kind of people that we are. We are reconciled people. Let us live like that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Worship team, I, I know I've, I'm way over my time. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you are the reconciler. You've got a solution to the sin of racism and discrimination and, and prejudice that causes us to do wrongful things to our brother just because they're different. You've got a solution for that. And your solution is put them both in the same family. Put the oppressor and the oppressed. Put the king and the servant. Put the Jew and the Gentile, the Latino and the Iranian. Put them all in the same family. Let them point themselves, their hearts to Jesus and see what I'll do in the world. Lord Jesus, until then, Lord, come, Lord Jesus, come soon.